Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money. The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we are joined by Bill Sweet, CFO and advisor at Ritholtz Wealth Management, a rapidly growing wealth management firm who counts some of the internet's most popular investment bloggers as being part of their team. We talked to Bill about a wide range of issues from potential changes to the tax code and who may be impacted the most to his firm's growth and how they develop investment plans for their clients through the use of direct indexing and also how Bill's experience as a captain in the army during Iraqi freedom has helped him in business. As you'll see, Bill is quick to give credit where credit is due. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Ritholtz Wealth Management's Bill Sweet. Bill, thank you very much for joining us today. Great. Great to be here, gentlemen. Thank you. We're going to talk about a lot of different things from Ritholtz Wealth Management and the firm's growth to changes that investors should be thinking about when it comes to the tax code and taxes to things like direct indexing, which your firm is deploying for some clients. But before we get into all that, I wanted to talk about one area that you and I actually have in common, and that's the military. Um, I was in the Connecticut Air National Guard from the late 90s through the early 2000s, and it was right around the time that I was getting out that um, you enlisted in the Army where you were a captain and awarded um, a Bronze Star for your action in combat while serving in Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. So the first thing I want to say to you is thank you for your service and your sacrifice. Thanks. Thanks, Justin, very much. Same, same back to you. Uh, obviously, been been a lot in the news here the last two months, just everything kind of winding down overseas. So been on my mind a lot, the guys that are out there on the front lines of freedom uh, today. So thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and you've seen it firsthand. So, and I know some of the things that we've done together, like the March for the Fallen, are yeah. you know great events, and you're still out there honoring the people and the guys that, and, and girls that you served with. Yeah, we went down to Valley Forge this year. It was pretty awesome. And I was listening to your interview with uh, Rodrigo and Corey, and I had forgotten that Corey Hofstein, the true lunatic that he is, uh, did that with 75 pounds last year. So, uh, so yeah, I think we all have a, a lot to a lot to get between the gap between Corey and, and me seems to keep growing. So we have some work to do. So let's start by talking about your experiences in the military. Just I, I thought it would be good to hear the story how you went from tanks to training drill sergeants to doing tax returns. Yeah, sure. So I think like the the thing that 
for me separates like a, a, a professional out there that I would want to work with versus somebody who hasn't is somebody who's willing and, and able to get their hands dirty. And I think that I kind of had that as a kid where I wanted to tear things apart. I was one of those kids kind of ripping the radio apart and rebuilding it. And then uh, that led me to an engineering degree. And my dad was in the service too. It was something that I just kind of always wanted to do. But like the actual reality of it is, Justin, I don't know if this was your time in, you know, in the guard too, but that I needed a way to pay for college. <laughs> like that's like the economic reality of it and it turns out that if you uh, give the army somewhere between four and six years of your professional life they will be, basically pay for your college right and that's awesome and give you a stipend give you free health care uh, and all that stuff kind of happened so it was something that I that I really wanted to do and uh, that that led me to the investment world too and in that I was uh, basically volunteered as, as you know from your time you don't volunteer for additional duties uh, you get volunteered, and I was basically volunteered at some point to be in a tax assistance officer. So I had to understand and help soldiers make decisions. If I'm a citizen of Alaska, do I have to file a tax return to get my permanent uh, dividend check? Do I have to file in Ohio if I'm on active duty in Indiana? All those questions, uh, unfortunately, fall on the individual soldier and the officer to help out. So that's what kind of led me to the tax world and the investment world where I am today. And then from there, you got involved with the tax planning pr uh, practice that you're family was running? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I just fortuitous. I was looking for a job. Uh, I was thinking engineering uh, was probably going to end up on the West Coast. It's kind of funny to think about what I might have been if I had gone out to Silicon Valley in 2002. Uh, but I think everything worked out. But yeah, I had a, uh, uh, excuse me, 2007. I had a friend, uh, a friend of the family leave a family tax practice to take a job at the University of New Paltz. And that was in September uh, going into the tax season. And so my very first year, I just got put in the foxhole and was doing 1040s and 1065s and 1120s for individual clients and just kind of had to figure it out. Uh, from a low level and work my way up. And I, so I think we started with somewhere around 400, 500 individual tax filings in 07, and we peaked around 2014 with a little under 1,000. And so just kept building a business from there. It was a lot of fun. And uh, ultimately, again, just found that the, the way you learn is to just do. You got to get your hands dirty. You get in the tax program. Clients asking you questions about what's taxable, what isn't. And as you guys know, 2007 to 2009 was a really interesting and eventful time uh, to be a tax or investment practitioner. Just going back to the military for uh, a second here, what do you think for you is the biggest lesson that you've learned and that you've kind of applied to your career and how you either work with clients or um, sort of how you approach, you know, um, running Ritholtz, you know, helping run Ritholtz Wealth Management. I mean, I, I was reading one of the articles uh, that Josh Brown wrote about you and he was, this is from a few years ago, but he was calling you their, their secret weapon. Like you were very important for operational purposes. And so it just kind of made me think like, I, I, I have to believe a lot of that discipline and just work ethic you know, it's in you, but, you know, I'm sure the military helped bring that out. Yeah, the story that sticks in my mind is we had a, I had a first sergeant, one of my first units. And again, I'm an officer, so I wasn't really the subject of his wrath, right? I was kind of, I was there and was training. But I just remember he had a buck sergeant or I, maybe a specialist walk by. I don't remember what it was because it, it was a piece of garbage out in the PT field. And he just, he grabbed that individual, ripped his head off and said, you just walk by this smoldering piece of, you know, SHIT or whatever, whatever epithet he used and said, if you see something that's laying there, you have to do something about it. That, that could be this, that could be that. But the, the message that he kind of laid out to him was, if you see a problem, fix it. And it's sort of the cavalry ethos is do not ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. 
And that can cut both ways, I think. Ultimately, I don't know if everyone would really fit into that kind of mentality, but I, I just sort of adopted that, that if there's if there's a problem, if there's something that's there. And so you know, early on, I just started asking questions internally in the firm about you know what, what's going on here. There was tax questions about this. Of course, again, my background made some sense. And so I said, you know, who's doing the bookkeeping? And it was like, well, the CPA is doing it. And if you know anything about the way most CPAs do, they don't do any bookkeeping. <laughs> it's all internally or outsourced. And so I said, hey, let me take this over. Let me take on this project. Let me take on this client. This is somebody that you don't like working with. Let me help out. And that mentality, I think, is something that, that you get from, from, from the military, from, the, from that ethos. Because ultimately, if you're an officer, your job, you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for your soldiers' health, welfare, morale, education, the whole the whole ball of wax. And if you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to logistics, if you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to tank gunnery, if you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to the fourth fundamental reconnaissance, which is report information rapidly and accurately up the chain of command, you're not able to do your job. And so I think that kind of taking ownership mentality, not to be too Jocko Wilnick about it, but I think that's it. And that that that's not something that... I don't think you learn in a college classroom. Uh, the, the sort of phrase I like to use is that you, you may not get somebody you hire from the Army doesn't have a fancy college degree. They didn't graduate from Wharton, but they have a master's degree in getting stuff done. And that's what I think you need to look for when you're looking for an operator at that level. That served me well and sometimes gotten me into trouble, <laughs> even internally in the firm. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure like you guys have experienced massive growth. And when you're growing like that, you know, you need someone in there like yourself, being able to think about these things and being able to just roll their sleeves up and, you know, get dirty, whether it's in the accounting software or, you know, compensation packages or whatever it might be. So, I mean, that's one of the things with Ritholtz. You guys have experienced this massive growth over really last, I mean, I don't know if it's been mostly in the last five years or so, but, and you've done it in kind of an unconventional way with the, you know, with, with, with the content, with the blogging, with the sort of social media to a large extent. Um, so can you just, I thought it would be cool to just to hear sort of a little bit more about the story around that growth from your perspective. I mean, you've seen it, you've seen the firm go from 90 million, basically in AUM, something like that to, I don't know how much you manage now. It might be 2 billion, um, roughly. So roughly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's an incredible story of growth. And I just was wondering if there's any sort of details that you want to share as to how you guys achieved it. Yeah, I think just like right people, right time. So all credit goes to Barry, Josh, uh, Michael, Chris. Those are the the sort of founding four uh, individuals. And they broke off from a larger group in 2013 to kind of found the ethos of the firm. And if the, the thing that I kind of learned early on when I was sort of saying, gee, you know, in 2015, do I want to put my career in the hands of these four guys uh, from Long Island? Uh, I, obviously, that was for me the one of the best and luckiest decisions of my career. But th they are exactly who they say they are. So if you watch Josh on CNBC, if you read Barry, and you've been reading him for at this point thirty years, uh, there's there's no secrets at this point. Like they they bear their soul uh, every day out there in the world, on whether it's on Twitter or on on media. And ultimately, I think that I hate to use the word authenticity because I think that's kind of overused in our society but the, I think that's it is that I, I think that the thing that and again Chris Venn our, our, our sort of manager he's a manager of wealth at the firm he a director he, he says you just you have to tell people what you're going to do and then you have to do it and it really is that simple and I think in in unfortunately the industry that we're in and I would obviously you guys are a stellar example of of how the most of the industry doesn't operate which is which is that it's just I think you need to be very clear and upfront with people and set expectations early and and do 
do what you say you're going to do. And so I think that ultimately was it. I think a lot of it, happy accidents too. Uh, again, hiring the right people at the right time. And so you think about Ben Carlson, what he came in and brought to the table, Joey Fishman, uh, Erica Morrow, who's I think one of the unsung heroes is our director of operations, who really, she keeps the trains running on time. She's the one processing clients' requests and onboarding, which is so important to make sure that clients get that first impression. And now we're 40 strong. And I think ultimately, if, if one of those hires hadn't gone well, if we hadn't have gotten the best of the best, at the time, maybe we're not here at the level that we're on, but we have a lot of work to do. And I think that's that's one of the things I just remember so clearly, I think it was in 2017, 2018, I remember having a conversation with Josh about where we were as a firm and how we maybe needed to slow down a little bit because we needed to digest, we need to sort of make sure that we're getting X, Y, Z. And I remember he looked at me for about 20 seconds and he pounded the table and said, never, <laughs> we will never slow down. <laughs> And his point was that we can't take for granted, like, the moment that we're in, the, the sort of thing that we're capturing. And I think a lot of your guys' success, too, again, has to do with who you are and what you're doing even here on this podcast. If you put yourself out there, there's no guarantee that we're going to continue to enjoy the success. And so we have to go out there and earn the next opportunity the same way we did in 2013, 2015, 2017. I think that that mentality is still with us today and that, that that hopefully will drive us into 2030 and beyond. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for those compliments as well. We really appreciate it coming from you. Um, this is going to be kind of a harsh pivot, but it's an important one to think about, which is <laughs> good luck, which is well, which is you had all that success. But then at the same time, yeah. you know what what mistakes were made along the way that you think others can kind of learn from here? Because as we know, it's not always sort of the smoothest sailing and learning from those mistakes is very important. So is there anything that sort of jumps out at you as like, like, oh, you know, oh shit, we shouldn't have done that or? or... Yeah, I mean, nothing sort of jumps to mind in specifics, but I think the general thing that I would focus on is that I think we have a couple of core competencies. I think communication is probably number one, the way that, that Barry, Josh, Nick Majuli, uh, Michael Batnick communicate with clients, I think is fantastic. And I think that's like at the top of the list compared to what most other content we see, that to me sort of stands out. But to give you an example of something that I think we could have done better or earlier was sort of maybe selecting uh, certain partners a little bit better uh, up front. And so I think ultimately we've got two fantastic sort of sub-advisors right now and only two. Uh, but we had to kind of figure out that those, that what the things that O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is one, Girton Asset Management is another, and basically just about everything else we, we have internally. And we've sort of built some solution internally for that. And finding where that line is, is not always obvious. And so I think uh, sort of figuring out, I think, again, back to your earlier question, you know, what, what, what would you take in the military? What I took in the military was I had to learn everything and I have to get the best that I can possibly do. But I gotta be honest with you, I'm not on the investment committee for a reason. Like I am not good at selecting and choosing individual investments. I, I can pick stuff out, but what my portfolios, but when I was a sole advisor, an example, ended up being like ETF mutual fund salad. Right. I just I never had the opportunity. I never had the, the stones to say I need to sell this. This is the right time to realize this gain. So but I think that kind of that that process of, of picking and choosing partners and then finding internally what to what to insource, what to outsource is, is critical for us. I can't say that we have it right now, but we we now have a process in place. And I think that kind of 
process over outcome mentality of of what like again to quote chris standardize the process customize the advice they're in the clients it took us i think a little while to get to that point um and there were some mistakes made along the way but fortunately we were able to overcome them if it affected a client we were able to make it right and ultimately that that lesson of process is, is what i would take forward with us today I'm, I'm kind of a tax nerd like you so i was uh, many people consider this a dry topic but i was actually excited to have you on because we can we can do some no, hard, let's do some it hardcore let's tax do it talk. jack um but before we talk about we want to talk about the biden uh tax proposals but before we do that i kind of want to talk about taxes in general and the role they play you know when i talk to advisors you have some advisors who are sort of say, all right, I just ignore taxes. You know, I try to generate the best returns for my clients. I figure it out later. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where they say, you know, it, it really is an essential part of your investment process. And I'm wondering if you maybe talk about where you fall and the role you think taxes should play for investors as they think about their portfolios. Yeah, so it's it's never the lead thing, Jack. And you know that, Justin knows that. I think anybody who's been doing this for a while knows. A CPA friend of mine told me once, anytime an investment advisor says we're doing this for tax reasons, he immediately like hangs up right, and calls the guy back later. Um, but I think as maybe the fourth consideration, the fifth consideration, just as a real quick example, like the difference today between realizing gains in ordinary income at 40.8% versus uh, cap, long-term capital gains at 24.8%, excuse me, 23.8%. And that's a massive difference, right? That 15% or so that you're getting on a gap. And sometimes it can happen in a matter of a day, right? If you just waited a day and paid attention to when that long-term gain cycle, you know, the stuff that Betterman, I think, is doing real well automating, O'Shaughnessy, certainly. It does matter, but it's never at the top of the list. But as far as structural things, uh, just to give you another great example of things that we're doing right now with clients, we expect taxes to go up. I mean, it's almost certain, and that is going to target folks that are in the higher tax brackets in 400000 We expect that to happen as early as January 1st. It may have already happened because, as we'll talk about, the House Ways and Means Proposal Committee for Capital Gains is retroactive to September. Right. And so we might be living in a higher tax world right now. We just don't know it yet. And so maybe we consider a donor advised fund contribution for a specific client with highly appreciated securities. Maybe that conversation should happen in January. The conversation should happen now, but maybe the transaction happens in January where we expect it to be worth about three to five percent more on an AGI basis if everything plays out. So I think for, to answer the question, Jack, it's never the top consideration. But as far as the nuance, as far as getting things right, the attention to detail, in my opinion, that's required to be a good advisor tax has to be in the conversation if not if, if it's never going to be in the top one or two or three you alluded to this a little bit already but one of the things we try to do with the podcast is to try to pick out sort of some major lessons investors who follow us can learn and, and i'm wondering you you've looked you've been working in taxes for a long time are, are there some common things people do wrong with respect to their investments in taxes that you maybe could pick up on that you know we might be able to to highlight as things investors could learn from yeah i mean asset location is probably number one right and I, I i don't every advisor handles this sort of thing a little bit differently but i never really understood if if you're looking at a client's situation holistically let's just say they have a half million dollars in an IRA and they're blessed to have another half a million dollars in a non-qualified account, there are massive changes on how assets are taxed between those two accounts. And so one of the things I look to do with specifically with clients is if I have assets that are generating ordinary income, uh, so those are typically bonds, it can be uh, sort of non-qualified dividends from, let's say, a, a, a country that doesn't have a good tax treaty, some type of security. Those really, to me, lend themselves to that type of IRA-like security, right? Because ultimately, any gains or any income received in that account, you're not going to pay tax on until you distribute the assets in the future. And so somebody, let's say, hypothetically in their 50s, who's the mass amount of wealth, they're not going to touch that IRA account for 10 years. And so why am I realizing... Why am I paying ordinary income tax on income that I'm earning today if I just take a 60-40 model and apply it to both accounts? 
So I think asset location is a big one. That's pretty complex to solve for. Uh, our friend and guest of the podcast, Wes Gray, told me in 2015 when I pitched him, uh, potentially thinking I could go work for Alpha Architect, I didn't make the cut, by the way, uh, that, uh, that tax doesn't scale. And I think he's right about that, is that it's so bespoke and specific to each taxpayer. It's very, very hard to, you know, you guys see these like models, you go online to sort of estimate your taxes. They're all wrong. They're all terrible because every taxpayer has these lots of multivariable things. But I think asset location, answer your question is number one, Jack. Number two thing, and I'm just sort of beating the drum on this recently, so it's in my mind, uh, is Roth, the power of Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks. And if you look at the generational opportunity those present, even after the SECURE Act goes into place, right, now we have a 10-year limit on distributions. I think people are massively underfunding and looking at the Roth opportunity, especially if Jack, and I don't know, uh, Jack, are we living in a low-tax world right now or are we living in a, or are we not? We are living in a low-tax world right now. Yeah, I think we're in a bubble. If you look at OE, major OECD countries, we're at the bottom third. If you look at historical tax rates, we're low. I think this is like a magical window that could potentially be closing. I've been wrong about that before. And so if I have a choice to pay 37% on my ordinary income tax on a Roth conversion today for a high-income taxpayer, that to me beats potentially paying 45% a couple of years from now or in distribution, and then maybe tacking on a 40% estate tax to that at the end as well, right? Because if I'm paying taxes, that actually reduces reduces my gross taxable estate for estate tax purposes. So I think it's complex, but the third thing I've referenced it before would be charity, uh, sort of strategically thinking about how to fund charitable contributions via donor advice fund, private foundation. There's certain things that you can do strategically with highly appreciated securities that to me make a lot of sense. I think most taxpayers, they just write a check at the end of the year and that's great, but I think there are better ways to do it. Before we get into all the specifics of the Biden proposal, I first want to just maybe set the stage for where we are. So where is this proposal in terms of going through Congress and the president? Where is it? And, you know, what, what are the expectations in terms of when it might pass, if it definitely is going to pass? Sort of how are you looking at that going forward? Yeah, so great question. And we're playing a bit of political roulette. And I don't know how closely you or the listener sort of uh, track politics, which is mostly a gigantic waste of time, right? Because ultimately, I think it's very likely that the, a tax bill will pass in reconciliation before now and the end of the year, right? Because if it doesn't pass this year, the, the Biden administration's lost a, an opportunity to do that. They can only do one a year. The budget reconciliation rules in the Senate make the U.S. tax code look like reading Barney. Uh, so like it, this is not simple stuff to understand, but ultimately a lot of it's political theater. I, I think if there's 50 votes, they're going to pass some sort of tax increase and that's more or less set. The best model that we have, Jack, for what that might look like, and you're familiar with this, is the House Ways and Means uh, Committee proposal. came out about a month ago. And ultimately, I don't think that 100% is going to go through as it's been drafted, but for me, it's a good look. Some, some staffers were involved. It's actually a thoughtful approach of what tax reform could look like, and I think that's the best possible model. I think it will change, but I would put the probability of tax reform somewhere along those lines. Let's say 80% of those proposals, in my opinion, have like a 70% chance of passing muster here going into 2022. So that's my guess. Uh, but the, the reality is we don't know, and that's a reality, and so we have to plan for an uncertain world, and that probably is what you're getting at in the question. We, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but, you know, the popular narrative with this is this basically is something that only affects people above 400000 in income. You know, do you think that's a fair characterization? Based on the proposal, I think more or less, yes. Uh, for folks that are, let's say, $150,000 of AGI, and let, let's be clear, that's more than 90% of U.S. taxpayers. 
the, the, it really doesn't impact them on the tax side unless they have like a big spike of income. So the typical case would be somebody selling a business, right? So if they're earning a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand dollars of income, they sell a business, they have 500,000, all of a sudden some of these provisions come into play. In fact, a lot of the changes, let's say the child tax proposal, which is a big component that actually assists taxpayers, right? Is that right now for kids under six, there's a $3,600 child tax credit, which is as high as it's ever been. And ultimately, this proposal would extend that. So, yeah, I think that's fair, Jack, from, from my opinion, based on what we know. I'd always wondered, um, you know, when they set these thresholds, you know, there's all these different thresholds, 250,000, 400,000. Is there any rhyme or reason to that? I mean, is that based on the percentage of taxpayers above and beyond a certain threshold? Or is that just something when they negotiate, they just come up with a round number? Yeah, I wish to goodness I could put some illustration. I mean, I don't live in D.C., so I'm not I'm not at cocktail parties talking about this stuff. So the reality is I don't know. But based on just the outsider's approach, I think it makes about as much sense as, as, as anything else as, as the NFT world. I I think you're right. I think these are round numbers. I think $100,000 seems like a lot of money. And gee, if we just have this affect people at 450, but honestly, I, yeah, I don't think this affects a lot of folks outside of the respect that if you sort of look at the 1% like wealth distribution and where that occurs and income is not wealth. So I think we need to be very careful with that one. But let's say the top percent of income that, that happens roughly about the half million mark. So that does make sense. If something passes that 99% of the country in theory doesn't care about it, probably politically, you're not going to get a lot of brushback. That makes sense. So I just wanted to go through each one of the provisions really quick, just to kind of give people a high level overview. Uh, talking about income tax rates, what does the changes in income tax rates look like? Yeah, so so the big headline here, and this is like the number one thing for me, is for folks that this affects, it's the return, uh, the, the, the majestic return of the 39.6% tax bracket. Jack, you're a tax guy. Do you happen to know how we got to 39.6%? Why isn't it 40? Why isn't it, do you have any idea? I looked after this. I actually don't know. I mean, I would assume maybe it sounds a little better than 40, but I really don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Come under. Like it's nine, you know, things are $99, right? They're never a hundred. Yeah, uh, exactly. No, it actually, so it goes back to the, to the, to the omnibus budget reconciliation, reconciliation act of 93 passed during the Clinton administration. So the prior tax, so this is the Reagan era top tax rate was 31%. And that applied then to anybody earning $52,000 or more, right? Which is probably, I don't know, I can't adjust for inflation on my head, but let's just say it's $100,000 today. Uh, the new tax act created a bracket of 36% for folks over 115. But then the language of the law said that there's going to be another 10% increase above that. And the way that it was written, this ended up kind of being debated on the floor was that 10% added to 36% is 39.6. And that's why it's 39.6 and not 40. It was just some, some dumbass forgot to change the language. They didn't add 10% to 36%. They said it was uh, sort of multiplicitous. And so it ends up being just a fat, uh, a fail of math. Interesting, just sort of uh, historical stuff too. The, the the design of that bill was meant to balance the federal budget or cut the federal deficit in half. I think by 1996 or 1998. I, I don't remember. I'm not watching impeachment, the Ryan uh, Miller thing on TV right now. But uh, regardless, it ended up actually balancing the budget by 96 because of the internet. And so the higher taxes came in. You have all these sort of pre dot com, pre you know VC sort of millionaires come up. And 1996 was the last budget year, 97 that the federal budget uh, there was a federal budget surplus, and it might be the last one probably in our lifetime. So it worked. It worked back then. 
So to, to move on to probably what the most important area for investors, maybe or the one most investors are most concerned about, the idea of what's happening with capital gains rates. But I think also a big yeah. part of it is maybe when it's happening that people need to know as well. So can you just summarize what's happening with capital gains rates? Yeah, sure. So that, that is the one retroactive change, Jack, and that's what you're getting at. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, that if this thing goes through and if the sort of proposal goes through, it's basically of the proposal date it was first introduced, which happened to be September 14th, 2021. And so we may be living at a 25% capital gains rate today does not affect every taxpayer so that's important to illustrate uh so for again most taxpayers and this is actually interesting from a tax planning standpoint if your taxable income on a joint side so you cut these numbers in half for single is eighty thousand dollars or below your capital gains rate is zero and so that that again back to like cute tax planning things to do for somebody who's retiring for me, it always made sense to defer, let's say, on Social Security income recognition, because ultimately, if you could have a couple of low income years and realize gains at zero percent, you're not paying 15 percent on capital gains. Right. And so I'm guessing you guys have done that for certain clients. For me, it's important. And then uh, the 15 percent bracket kicks in to make matters all the more complicated. There's a 3.8 percent uh, net investment surcharge that applies at 250. But then there's another 25 percent tax bracket that applies to joint taxpayers at four hundred fifty thousand dollars or above. And so a tax planning tip, if you have a client that's considering selling a business or something like that, this typically when these things happen, it may be too late. Um, but ultimately, this to me affects things like, uh, let's say, opportunity zones, which are a hot topic in 2017, 2018, when the TCGA rolled out, right? There was a five-year deferral of gains. Well, guess what's going to happen potentially is that that deferral is going to kick in and people are going to have to realize their gains at a higher tax rate, which kind of sinks, right? If you were planning on one thing and getting dealt a different set of cards, that's another. Um, just to reconnect to Jack, if we could, on the 39.6% uh, tax chat bracket on the high end, that now affects a lower amount of income tax bracket uh, filers. So today, the 37% bracket starts at about $630,000 of joint filing income. Uh, in the new tax proposal, that, that gets lowered all the way to 450, meaning that a taxpayer next year that's somewhere between 450 and 630 could potentially be facing up to a 5% tax swing on that income, which, again, not, not exactly fun to have to explain to Mr. Client uh, who's impacted by that. Uh, just two more I want to touch on before we uh, move on to, to away from tax, and although you and I could probably go on for hours about this. Um, the idea of a backdoor Roth IRA conversion, yeah. you know, that's something that's commonly done right now. It's something that may change in, in this new bill. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe say what, explain to people who don't know what that is, what that yeah. is, and maybe how the ability to do that might change under this new legislation. Yeah, sure. So Roth IRAs, again, I preached the benefits. And are you guys on board with me? Am I the only one that loves Ross? Do you guys oh, like me to yeah. drum on we, this? We actually like, have Roth. Yeah, we love Ross as well. We have Ro I'm among friends. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> um, so if that's the case, then sort of a, once you go above a certain income threshold, I think it's like 140. I think the phase out's at 125 for a joint filer. You're no longer allowed to directly contribute to a Roth IRA, right? That door's shut. And so you can't really get dollars. For IRAs, it's, you're not talking about a large amount. I mean, you're talking 6000 a year, add another 1000 for somebody over 50, but it, but it adds up over time, right? And so if you're looking for a way to add value as an advisor, this is something I've preached for, for years, since 2007. Roth, 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 Roth. You get the money tax-free. Like, what, why, why even debate it? So the, but there's no income bracket. There's no income limit for conversions. And a conversion is if you have money in an IRA and you decide to convert it, you can then 
do that, you just have to pay the tax, right? And so that stinks. There was some debate years ago, uh, but the IRS chief counsel, I think in 2018, came out and finally just sort of removed the ambiguity and said, yeah, there's no reason not to do this. There's nothing in the law that prevents somebody not from doing this. So yeah, I would say popular strategy, especially amongst the financial advisor community, uh, folks like us. So the backdoor indicates that, let's say you don't have an IRA, you can contribute up to $6,000 a year. Let's say I'm earning, I'm blessed, I'm earning $150,000 a year, elect not to take a tax deduction. I can then immediately, after I've con contributed the money to the IRA, not taking a deduction, just convert it to a Roth, right? And so the back door is like this loop that you have to do through a traditional IRA to get the money into a Roth. And you can do that at any income range, right? So somebody that's earning joint couple, earning above the threshold. And this bill effectively says no dice, <laughs> like you're not allowed to do this anymore. And so I'm not really sure why. I mean, it seems to me like such a small amount of money, it kind of benefits Congress, right? Because ultimately, like, what is a federal deficit all about? It's about, you know, we don't want people deferring gains. We want them realizing taxes. In the past, since the Roth came out in 95, it's been a favorite of, 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 of K Street because they just like give us the tax now. We want the money now for political purposes, right? So I don't really understand what this is all about. Probably, and Jack, forgive me if I step on you if you're going to ask this next, but the bigger impact is actually through uh, 401k plans. And so uh, there's a revenue ruling that came out, I think, in 2016 that said that, hey, actually, guys, I, this is the IRS saying you can contribute in addition to your $19,000, $19,500 elective contribution to deferrals, this thing called a mega backdoor 401k contribution, all the way up to the $58,000 uh, contribution limit on the qualified plan asset side. So you have to have a plan that, that allows this. A lot of plans do. Google's a good example of a, of a, a folk that we have a bunch of clients with. And so that allows you to effectively fund like these Roth contributions on an after-tax voluntary basis all the way up to more than $50,000 a year. And so that, that, that proposal is also being targeted, probably a very small percentage of the population. That's why my guess is it's our friend Peter Thiel. And I, I can't recall, I don't think you guys have talked about this, but Jack, you're, you're aware of what happened to Mr. Teal, right? And yes, I am. Uh, yeah, the article about him, I am aware of it, yes. Yeah, so, the, so the, the thing was, it got revealed, and again, I think this is actually kind of contentious, but uh, th that somebody leaked IRS data, Mr. Teal has more than a $10 million Roth IRA, and ultimately that's all going to be tax-free to him or his heirs. And so I think it's just a punitive thing. There, there's another measure in the bill we can talk about, but that's my guess. It's just, it's a political talking point, unfortunately. And then just one more, because I think this is something people ignore. And I have to be honest, I ignored this myself too much. And I just finished taking the CFP exam. And this was probably the hardest part for me. Um, oh, wow. is this whole idea of the estate tax. Um, yeah. you know, and this is going to substantially change the estate tax, but also maybe before you answer what those changes are going to be, if you could maybe just talk about at a high level what the estate tax is, kind of how it affects people, and then maybe talk about what might change in this for people with the estate tax. Yeah. So depending on what side of the political aisle you sit on, and I'm agnostic, by the way, the, the nice thing about being in the military, Justin, you remember this, you get to be politically agnostic, right? I couldn't go out and campaign for a candidate if I wanted to, because uh, I'm still a commissioned officer in the United States Army. That said, um, it's either a death tax or an estate tax, depending on which side of the political aisle you sit on. But yeah, so for assets, and this is like a, on the second to die, uh, typically, so let's, let's just remove single individuals for a second. We'll talk about them in a moment. 
Um, the, the current federal exemption is all the way up at $11.7 million. And so this just does not affect the majority of taxpayers, right? Because most people do not pass away with more than $11.7 million at the federal level. But for folks that do, for folks that do have assets above that level, starting at, at zero above that threshold and all the way up to a million, there's a tax that sort of graduates starting at, I think, 16 or 18 percent, all the way up to 40 percent. And so in theory, if you have a taxpayer that's worth $15 million and they do no estate tax planning, they just do no planning at all, and God forbid they pass away, uh, their estate tax exposed for the difference between 15 and $11.7 million, and the IRS takes about 40% of the difference, right? And so Form 706 needs to be filed within, uh, I think, three months or with nine months of the date of death, and then there's a pretty substantial tax that applies. And so, again, depending on where you are on the spectrum, that's either sort of a way to sort of equalize wealth, right? So if you have people amassing large amounts of wealth, as this generational transfer occurs, the IRS comes in and says, hey, anything above 11.7, we're going to tax you on that. Not the whole amount, 40%. If you're on the other side of political aisle, you look at this as kind of grim, which I guess it is. It's kind of morose, right, because you're taxing dead people for the privilege of dying, I guess. Um, but really, it's a way, I think, to, to, to sort of uh, effectively double tax, right? Because in theory, uh, that's income that's already been earned and it's been accumulated and compounded. And then you're tacking on another 40% tax to that, depending on how you feel about all these topics. And I think it is more esoteric. It, this does end up being a very small amount of federal revenue. So I think in, the, in terms of political football, it, it probably plays a much higher role, especially given that you can effectively tax plan your way around this. Another thing that this really impacts, Jack, and I, I hope this is where we're going, is, is on the charitable realm, right? Because probably the most powerful tool that you have to prevent your estate from being taxed is you give the money away, right, to a 501c3 charity, to a church, a synagogue, a temple, a library, something of that nature. So I, I think when we're talking about estate tax proposals and estate tax changes, it does impact just more than wealthy people because it could potentially impact a foundation, a library, a college, too. And so I think all these considerations are important to consider. And just, just one more on the taxes I wanted to ask, because this was, this sort of caused a firestorm on Twitter, is this idea, you know, ETFs can use this create and redeem mechanism to effectively avoid capital gains distributions to their shareholders. And there was, and I don't think it's in this bill, I think it was a proposed amendment or something like that, but th there was a proposed amendment that would eliminate that. And I'm wondering, do you think, do you think that's dead on arrival? Do you think that's something that could end up in, in a tax bill at some point? Yeah, so could, yes. I, I think it's definitely anything could possible. We could see this sort of wacky Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wealth tax kind of rear its ugly head again. But my guess is no. My guess is that the Ways and Means Proposal Committee, the thing that we actually have a document on, right, that we can read and speak intelligently about, that, that's the framework. And we may see some subtractions. We may see some additions to that. But my guess is that's it. And, Jack, I'm with you. I was kind of gratified to kind of see that because I think that is a game changer. And what Jack is talking about step up and basis is back to the estate tax conversation. In exchange for this 40% tax, we're going to apply to $11.7 million households and above, which, by the way, is 23.2 for a couple or 23.4, right, because you're talking two uh, exemptions. Um, you get a step up in basis for any assets that, that, that you have not paid capital gains tax on. And so real estate is a very popular tool that if you sort of depreciate and you take deductions right throughout the years and hopefully you see an asset grow, ultimately if you pass away and pass it on to your kids, that basis steps up. Your kids do not have to pay tax on that. And again, if you're below the exemption, you don't have to pay estate tax. So that's the idea. I would be perfectly happy as a citizen taxpaying sort of entity just remove both. Like, let's get rid of this silly uh, state tax, which is complex. And, you know, and people, I think, debate this endlessly for really no, no gain. 
Um, but the step up in basis thing, I think, creates some perverse incentives. Uh, guys, have you ever worked with clients that, you know, are sort of cling to assets? I think needlessly sometimes with this sort of goal to pass it on to their kids, which may be right and good. But if they're if they're not realizing the gains, if they're not able to enjoy the benefits of that, like I, I sometimes think that's a bit of a perverse incentive, right, to incentivize people to hold on to assets to death. I would be happy with a compromise in the middle, but I don't think that's where this is going. I, I think the estate level, the estate exemption is more than likely just going to decrease to about six million and that'll be the new reality that makes sense to, to some of the tax stuff i wanted to one of the things i try to do is learn a lot myself from this podcast and one of the things i struggle with a lot is this this idea of proposed tax changes so you know a lot of times you can come up with something with a client where well if these tax changes go through we should do x but if they don't we should do y and you know i'm wondering how as an advisor you think through that you know if, if you you want to make if it's going to happen you want to make the change but if it's not, you don't want to stick them with a change you made that's, you know, ends up not being applicable. So I'm wondering, <laughs> how, how do you sort of think through that process? Yeah, and it's it's unfortunately a lottery. And Jack, just to back to mistakes that I've made in my career, uh, to kind of bring it back to the start of the conversation, this is one thing I've screwed up again and again, where I have recommended a change, where I have recommended action, assuming that a tax proposal is going to go through. And then guess what? It doesn't. Uh, and that's just the, the world that we live in, is that it's a very politically contentious environment right now. It has been increasing polarization in Washington. It's all been discussed. We've been watching it for years. It doesn't matter which political party you swear your affiliation to. It seems to be more and more tribal as time goes on. And unfortunately, the tax code is now political football. But I think, Jack, as a default, I would plan on tax changes, taxes being relatively stable with the exception of the environment that we're in right now, where I think there's a very high probability of change and we have an amendment that we can sink our teeth into. In August, I was not having conversations about the potential for tax increases because I didn't have anything to look at. And I, but I do now, and I think it's a high probability that passes. Therefore, it's happening. But I think, again, back to Jack, a question that you asked early, like where does this rank? Where does tax rank in your sort of decision-making process? It's pretty low. It's in, it's in the fourth or fifth consideration. So, again, installment sales, this comes up. Realizing capital gains, this comes up. Charitable contributions, this come up. But the vast majority of our folks, I would say more than 90% of them, no change. Bill, I want to kind of switch gears here and talk about direct indexing for a minute. Um, yeah. Which I know is something you guys are using for, you know, a decent percentage of your, your clients. I don't know for all of them, but um, I wanted to just see if you could explain to the listeners and those watching this what direct, direct indexing actually is. And then what's your experience been so far using it? Yeah, sure. So I, I consider the direct indexing thing to be a bit of a paradigm shift. And so... Back to 2019, TD and Schwab sort of announced, I think within the same week, that they're going to waive all trading costs for individual investors. And it took them a little while to offer that to institutional investors, too. Um, but effectively, due to the Robin Hood effect or whoever you want to get credit, all of a sudden, I don't have to pay either an asset-based fee or a ticker charge every time I trade a U.S. stock or ADR. So that, that was a big shift uh, that happened in 2019. And sort of, if you think about owning assets, if I own, let's just say the S&P 500, this kind of default uh, investment index here in the US, I go out and I buy 504 securities, right? And then I create uh, an index fund uh, by myself. And so instead of owning a, a sort of three ticker ETF or a five ticker, let's say Vanguard 500 fund, I just do it myself, right? And because I do not have to pay an, a ticket charge to trade a security, and those indexes, I think the S&P reconstitutes two times a year. You guys are the wonks here, so you can fill me in on the details. Um, but I just DIY. I do it myself, right? 
And so that that's a really interesting shift, especially if if this sort of fractional share thing continues, right? So if I can do this and replicate an index uh, through a fractional share, I can own whatever it is the the five hundred and first stock in the S and P five hundred. I can own you know ten dollars of it, right, in my hundred thousand dollar portfolio. And so that 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 to me is it. So why would you want to do this? Like, why, why? So if I can pay, you know, three basis points to, to State Street or Vanguard, like, why would I want to own individual securities that it's there, there's a trade off that you get there. And that to me is that that the potential paradigm shift doesn't apply to all investors. But I think the folks that you can get meaningful benefits to it makes a ton of sense. So what types of clients or situations do you find that it works best for? So sort of advantage one is you can be extremely surgical with how you apply it. So use case number one, let's say I have a client who has to own a certain percentage of his or her company stock as an executive, or maybe they're getting a large amount of restricted shares that they can't sell for 10 years, and that comprises a large amount of their net worth. And let's say it's a high market cap company, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Netflix, Microsoft, etc. I can exclude the ownership of that company in my direct index portfolio. And so it's a way to sort of avoid, not avoid, but mitigate the impact of concentration risk or industry risk. Let's say I have an oil and gas executive. As you guys know, energy outside of this year, which is interesting, this sort of shift that we're going on right now, for the last 10 years, that has been a really terrible place. It's been a graveyard to be an investor, right? And so great, I'm getting paid, I'm, I'm doing well, but I don't need any more exposure to ExxonMobil, to Chevron. We can exclude entire sectors, entire industries with a push of a button. So that to me is very specific. We don't have to do it with options. We can just choose not to own the, the shares themselves. And also avoid stuff like um, executives, uh, you know, sometimes they're restricted in selling, right? And so if they have a security that they own directly, they can't sell it legally, right? It's, it's an SEC violation. So that solves for that problem entirely. Number two use case, extremely tax sensitive investors. And to give you a really neat scenario that we have with a couple of our folks, let's say that I have a client who is an active trader. Let's have, say it's in the cryptocurrency or NFT space. They're generating a ton of short-term gains. That is not a tax efficient investing strategy, right? They could be paying up to 46% of income on those gains next year in a couple of months from now, right? Because as we said before, the tax change could be retroactive. I can take their sort of, I hate this word, but let's say index-based, not passive, because I hate that word, index-based portfolio, let's say it's a million dollars, they have a crypto portfolio, I can harvest losses from their index-based portfolio to offset gains that they're taking in their active portfolio. That to me is extremely powerful because I can basically cut that tax rate uh, in half and effectively keep more of their gains in their pocket. And the fourth thing for us is that when we look at sort of all-in costs, so this to me is like the kicker that I always end with clients, it actually is slightly less expensive by a couple of basis points, but still less expensive for us to run a direct index portfolio inclusive of all costs relative to a factor-weighted uh, mutual fund ETF portfolio. So lower cost, more ability to be surgical and tax efficient. What to me is to lose? I, th I think it's the future. How do you think about the comparison of direct indexing, which, as you just explained, can be very tax efficient versus ETFs, which are also very tax efficient? I mean, how do you sort of view those? I'm sure you guys are still using some ETFs in your overall models and allocation. So how do you think about the two? Yeah, so you can't beat it. it. So on the low end, cost is a big, big driver, right? So I mentioned, you know, your very typical large cap uh, ETFs, you're talking less than 10 basis points, right? So, so that's driver number one. But how do they compare? I mean, Jack mentioned it before, ETFs have this really neat creation redemption mechanism that allows them to swap low basis securities with the market 
you have to have a really, really dumb uh, Barney-style manager to screw that up. If you're seeing capital gains distributions from ETFs at the end of the year, and it does happen, it has happened, I can show you examples, uh, that person should be fired and that ETF should be sold, right? So in both cases, it, it, I think I'm pretty agnostic because the actual gains still get realized at the end. Unless you're taking the tax losses, offsetting other gains, and then, as we mentioned before, you're getting a step up in basis when you die, but it requires you to die, so I don't know if that's a great planning tool. Uh, it's moot because ultimately, if you liquidate the securities in the future, it's more about the path along the way. So I think, again, I think the benefit that you would get from a direct indexing approach is you get that you get to accelerate the tax benefit on those losses, and they occur. Even in a, like a 2019 or 2017 case where we see U.S. stocks gain 35%, you still have roughly a third of uh, Russell 3000 stocks that are underwater, uh, certainly by the end of the year, but more than half at some point along the year. And so realizing those losses against other gains to me is very powerful. The last use case I'd say, and you don't get this from ETF, is like a real estate investor. And let's say they're, they're depreciated property. They've owned a property for 10 years. They've depreciated down, so their basis is low. That depreciation recapture, again, can be offset through losses harvested. So I think like unlocking those passive losses is something you do not get in an ETF, and that's, that's the key difference. I wanted to ask you about cryptocurrencies, and I'm not going to ask you to predict the price of Bitcoin or anything like that, but uh, you do sit in a very interesting <laughs> seat because you, you work with a lot of high net worth individuals. And I'm wondering what kind of penetration are we seeing in terms of those people investing in cryptocurrencies? Do you, do you see that most of your clients are investing in crypto or most of them are not? Or how are you seeing that? It's a great question, Jack. I don't have a great answer for you. Um, you know, just to be blunt, the, the kind of clientele that we work with today uh, if we do have somebody that has been involved in crypto, they're still in the accumulation phase. And a lot of our clients that are in the distribution phase are probably not participating in that slice in the market just because it is new, it is untested, a lot of promise. I mean, a lot of talk about use cases. I've been studying this space since about 2014. It was really when the IRS got involved when I was like, oh, what, what the heck is this? I should probably pay attention to this. Um, but I don't, I really don't know the answer to that question, Jack. But I think at this point, it's very hard to look at the history, the short history of that space and sort of conclude that it's going away. I think it would have died several times. It's like Jason, you know, coming back from the dead at this point. I mean, Mt. Gox was kind of like the thing that actually shook me. I don't know if you guys were paying too close attention at that time, but when it was like assassinations and prostitutes and they literally just shut down an entire custodian, I think in Hong Kong, I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the wild, wild west. And this is the outlaw Jesse Wales. Right. And this, this is gone. And then two years later, every conversation I had at Thanksgiving of 2017 was some dude asking me about Bitcoin. Right. So I think it's I think it's developing. It's going to turn into something. I, I think the more interesting parts of the marketplace have to do with like content creators. And I don't know if you guys want to go down that rabbit hole right now. But I, my guess is it's still a relatively small percentage of our of our clients because mostly we favored publicly traded securities and we just haven't found the right custodian, the right sort of partner, I think. Although we have some irons in the fire, as you guys might imagine, that to me is one of the harder riddles to solve. And I don't have a lot of great answers right now for clients. And so we're just, we're assisting them, I think, ad hoc. I'm talking a lot about the tax. 
wash sales, for example, do not apply to cryptocurrency right now. So it's an exciting place to play in. But for me, it's still a little bit new. And I cannot, I can confess I'm not on the cutting edge of deployment, mostly because our clients probably not suitable for a large percentage of exposure to something that could go to zero. Yeah. So, so you're not seeing it where you have to incorporate it into their plans too often yet, you know, because the majority of your clients aren't doing it. Yeah. And well, when they do, it's, it's a smaller percentage, right? And so a lot of folks that we have, and we talked to about this, that they, they scratch the itch, right? And so they have a direct managed portfolio, they have municipal bond portfolio, and we're very happy and competent to run there. Uh, but then they have other investments, right? They have angel investments, they have VCs, they have a couple of local businesses that they're funding. To me, cryptocurrency today falls in that bucket. It's not something that we manage to provide a lot of advice on outside of some of the tax and execution. It, it reminds me a little of, uh, I think Josh talked about this like a long time back. I think he wrote about this, something you do with clients, like clients that like trading. And, you know, you maybe just give them a yep. very small portion of the money and say, like, take this, yep. have fun with it, but don't ask us for any more. And it's sort of yep. like the, the idea of, yep. of crypto sort of reminds me, it reminded me of that as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to be clear, we're not giving it to them. They're, they're giving they're us giving the it other to you. Yeah, correct. <laughs> to manage, right? It's their money. Um, but yeah, that, that more or less is a grand scheme. Like one thing that Josh wrote that always stuck with me probably 10 years ago now was like my job, I am the bouncer that's standing outside the club and I let the good investments in and I kick the bad investments out. Right. And I put them in the garbage. And I think like for us and my, and again, this is not a firm official position. This is the way I see it. Crypto to me is like they're, they're first and they're right there in line. And we're trying to decide how do we do this? A custodianship is really the big thing, right? Because again, there's a reason that TD Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, the major custodians won't touch it. There's a reason for that. And I'm not saying that we're waiting for the industry to, to, to get woke on this topic. We are working on it. But the custodian thing is a big, big, big concern and how to insulate for that. And I don't think that we have all the answers yet. And therefore, we, we outside of advising clients on the execution, we don't have an official position. Just uh, two more questions here. Um, I want to ask you about your sort of perspective on the 60-40. I mean, this is something that we've talked about uh, on our podcast with other uh, amongst ourselves and, and other guests. But uh, do you have any feelings when you look at sort of valuations today and where interest rates are and, you know, what what if it's not going to bode that well for the 60-40, you know, five to 10 years from now? Um, do you have any sort of uh, views on that? And if you do, do you think like investors and advisors might need to get like a little bit more active on the stock selection side um, in terms of like, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of like direct indexing, like, you know, maybe tilting into value a little bit more or areas of the market where there might be, you know, better, higher expected returns, maybe emerging markets and things like that. So I don't know. Do you have any do you have any thoughts or feelings on that? Yeah, I, I no, nothing that's global, to be honest. Kind of my thought process on it is I don't have any strong feelings about what the right investment mix is generally until I'm able to do a deep, deep dive on a client situation to find out what, what is what is their expected stream of returns, what is their goals, what is their tax rate, et cetera. For me, it's not something that I think really applies globally because it's so specific to a specific type of investor. Very generally, I think we're in a, we have been positioned in a good place, in my opinion, 
because we're not quite relying on the sort of traditional building blocks. I, again, I, so just to frame it, we typically, for an investor that comes in, we'll have about eight out of ten dollars that they entrust us with in a sort of core, you know, uh, factor weighted approach that that has been the bedrock of our kind of industry post Markowitz and the efficient frontier, right? So this is nothing new. This is this is this is the orthodoxy, and it and it works. It works for most folks. But we also have been doing a tactical overlay, which Josh and Michael have certainly talked about, and we think that's an important thing. To us, it allows us to effectively have a dynamic asset allocation. That's the role that it serves, is that if you have a trend-following overlay on top of a sort of, let's call it a buy-and-hold approach, you end up sort of shifting gears. And so just as an example, when all the COVID sort of stuff was happening last year and the sort of prices went through, through the toilet, we shifted to a more conservative posture in February of last year, and we were very happy about that, given that it gives a certain type of investor that, that maybe needs to see change the ability to stick with that portfolio. So for me, the, the, the best single asset allocation for a client is the thing that they can stick with. And so we want to give people the ability to, to meet their financial goals, to achieve their financial goals with the, the most amount of risk they can tolerate, but, but not too much that they're going to bail. So that, that's my general thought on 60-40. We have been more aggressive. I think our standard kind of asset allocation relative to what I think your sort of cookie cutter advice would be if you just went to general investment advisor, that has clearly served us well. In hindsight, I don't know what the future holds. Uh, we see inflation numbers tick up. I think it's very clear that the sort of bond returns we've been getting since 1981. Imagine being an investor in, in let's say, April of 1981, and you bought a 30-year U.S. Treasury bond yielding 9%, right? That guy had to sell his bond, you know, sometime last year. And what do you do now, Mr. Client, right? That might have been the smartest investor, especially as you guys know, no state tax on uh, U.S. Treasuries. So what do you do now? I, I don't know. And I don't think that for your sort of standard typical case that you can rely on the income stream that you've seen in the rearview mirror. But I've been singing that song for 10 years and I've been wrong. So I don't hold a very high conviction. By the way, I love the conversation you guys had recently about, about again, it wasn't leverage, right? That wasn't the word. It return was uh, stacking. It was stacking. Yeah, stack, stacking, yeah, yeah. stacking mm -hmm. returns. Yeah. So I love that reframing, right? Because you're, yeah, okay. Leverage blows people up. We don't want that. Um, but I think that probably those types of solutions to me make a lot of sense. It's not something we deploy. But I think it's mostly about setting good expectations, sitting down with the client, and really having that conversation about, hey, you know, maybe historically you could have expected 8% a year from this portfolio. Mm -hmm. We can't rely on anything more than four. And that's real life. And we've been doing that, I think, effectively for years. So last closing question here for you. Um, and this is a standard one that we like to ask all of our guests, which is, Based on your experiences in the market and advising clients, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to the average investor, what would that be? For me, it's that investing is perpetual. Like, there's always this thought with retirees that, like, I should be in cash or I should be more conservative. And I'm always thinking, especially with folks that accumulate assets above a certain threshold, which we're very fortunate to work with folks who have been typically successful. The money's gonna outlive you. And so like your time horizon is relevant to the extent that you can make decisions. But if it's if you're investing for your kids or like I said, you have charitable intentions, 
a charity doesn't die. <laughs> like the Ford Foundation is going to be around forever. The Tuxedo Park Library is here indefinitely. And I think that that to me lends itself to taking on more risk. Have you guys read Will and Ariel Durant's Lessons of History? Does that book resonate with you guys? It's it's a really short read. It's great. Uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy turned it on, me onto it years ago. But they have a section on investing. And the thing is, it's like straight biblical that like, yes, diversification is biblical. You know, the guy takes and invests in cattles and horses or whatever else. But it's really that the inflation is a constant and the the, the wise investor holds a, a very small amount of like cash and everything else is an inflationary asset. And so I like in my personal investing, because I kind of think this way, I'm, I'm opening Roth areas for my kids. Uh, I plan on my assets lasting for 150 years, something like that. Education to me is the key, key priority for me and my family on what I'm saving for. And so I think just thinking in perpetuities is probably the right mentality to have and, and not to sort of think only about what happens this year, this month, this day. Good stuff, Bill. Um, we've covered a lot. So uh... did we make tax interesting? Did we do it? Can I declare victory? We, we definitely tried at least. We gave it a shot. Yeah, great. No, no comments on the 2000 Jeep Wrangler. I was sad that we didn't bring that up. Oh, well. I think you win the award for best backdrop we've had so far. I'll so. take it. I'll take it. So in my office upstairs, I should go up and get it. I have a, and I wish I had, I wish I brought it downstairs. I have a high explosive anti-tank round, not a real one, like a dummy one. And no one ever asked me about it. I, like, I'm always like wondering, yeah, because it's huge. It's like, it's this big. Um, but yeah, it's about 50 pounds. Yeah, next time. Next time. Um, so if... Yeah, thank you, Bill. If people want to learn more about Ritholtz and um, what you guys are working on, where can they go? Uh, I'm obviously RitholtzWealth.com. I think Twitter to me is still the place where conversations happen, right? We set this up on Twitter DMs. Uh, I would also give a shout out, please, to March for the Fallen. Uh, we run this every September. It's not a walkathon. It's not a charity. We're not looking for your money. Uh, but as uh, Justin kind of very generously and graciously introed, like there are people out there uh, on the front lines of freedom here today that, that in my mind should always be in our thoughts. It is about the fallen, but it's also about the people who are sacrificing to make this all possible. And again, given what went down in the Middle East over the last two months, I, I think it's a time for us all to reflect on that, on the, on the collective sacrifices uh, of people who are out there right now. So thanks very much for starting there. I think it's a great place to end too. So thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.